This is a very special edition of the Parsha podcast, not just because Parsha's Tiseitze is the anniversary of last year's unforgettable A Lifetime A Day episode, but because we're having a very special guest at the end of the show for the exquisite insight, my son Yehoshua he should live and be well, is coming on to share his thoughts and to give us his bar mitzvah speech. You may recall about a year and a half ago, our eldest son Akiva had his bar mitzvah and he was invited to the Parsha podcast and he gave a guest episode. Well, now it is my next son Yehoshua's turn. He's bar mitzvah now as well. And he's going to have his day in the spotlight, his day behind the microphone. Now, the truth is, his bar mitzvah, his actual birthday when he turned 13, was about two months ago, kind of the middle of uh, of July. And typically, we would schedule all of a child's bar mitzvah festivities around his birthday. But alas, it was the middle of July. And as you know, Houston is basically uninhabitable in July. And every year we take our trip to Canada. And not only do we leave, it's very common for people in our neighborhood, in our community to leave as well. So Yehoshua, all of his friends are out of town. So we decided to distribute his bar mitzvah festivities and today, it's going to be the fifth and final component of Yehoshua's Bar Mitzvah celebration festivities. On the day of his birthday, I think it was the 12th, the 13th of July, we celebrated his Bar Mitzvah in Israel. And that was celebration number one, component number one of the extended Bar Mitzvah festivities. And that Shabbos, it was Parshas Pinchas. A long time ago, there was a festive Kiddush celebration in Canada. And this past week, Yehoshua read from the Torah in our shul here in Houston. That was celebration number three. And then we had a nice celebratory feast for some local friends and his classmates, coupled with a siyum. Siyum is the Hebrew word for conclusion or completion. Yoshua completed an entire order of Mishnah, and he finished it in front of his friends and classmates, and that was number four. But of course, we have to celebrate with the Parsha Podcast family. So he's going to come on to share a message with y'all later on on the exquisite insight. But what I'm going to tell you today is what I said Sunday night, like I said Sunday night, we got together with some local friends and Yeshua's classmates, and I prepared a speech, one that relates to the bar mitzvah boy, but really it contains some very valuable lessons for all of us, and it also connects to the parsha. So I figured I'd share that with you and then bring on Yeshua for the exquisite insight, and he will tell you what he said at his bar mitzvah celebration. Now, this is going to be a little bit different than most episodes. Most episodes, we start off with the Parsha, and then we try to find the lesson. 
Here we're going to start off with the bar mitzvah angle to be more consistent with the theme, and then we'll transition to the parsha. Does that sound like a plan? Let's begin. Now, for the sake of full disclosure, what you're going to hear today is a bit more elaborate than what I shared Sunday night at the Bar Mitzvah festivity. Festivity number four, that is. When there were people there, there were guests in the room. I couldn't speak as loquaciously, as verbosely as I like to do. I didn't want to torment the assembled too much. But now it's the podcast, and we can expand on the subject, the very important and interesting subject, properly. So when someone turns bar mitzvah, bar or bat mitzvah, of course, it's a very significant milestone. They're now an adult, and they're now obligated in every single mitzvah in the Torah. Bar mitzvah means that they are now mature and are obligated by all the mitzvahs. So when a boy hits 13, when a girl hits 12, they become instantly obligated by all 630 mitzvahs. Previously, they were a child. And yes, of course, it's important to train our children to prepare them, but they're not technically obligated in any of the mitzvahs. They hit this milestone. They cross over the Rubicon. They're an adult. And instantly, they're obligated by all of Torah. But our tell us that there's something else that happens when a child, when a boy hits 13. And that is the arrival of the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination. This is the sparring mate of our nemesis and foe, the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. The Yetzer Tov arrives at Bar Mitzvah. The Midrash tells us that the Yetzer has a significant head start ahead of the Yetzer Tov. The evil inclination precedes the good inclination. The Yetzer the evil inclination, is present within a person since birth. From birth, the child has the influence of the Yetzer When does the Yetzer Tov arrive? Well, that happens at Bar Mitzvah. At Bar Mitzvah, it's the time of the arrival of the counterforts of the Yetzer Hara, the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination, arrives then. So here's the question. The Yetzer Hara, well, that's the incumbent. And it seems like it's an unfair battle. There are asymmetric forces at play. The Talmud tells us that the Yetzirah is older than the Yetzir Tov, and it's more gifted. In the Talmud, the Yetzirah is described as a sagacious, wily king. The Yetzirah is adroit, skilled, cunning, and forever steaming of ways to make man blunder and fail. By comparison, says the Talmud, The Yetzer Tov, the good inclination, is young, is immature, is comparatively pathetic. A pathetic child going up against a nuclear-powered submarine. There's a disproportionate allocation 
of forces. These two fighters are in completely different weight classes. The Yetzirah has a 13-year head start on the Yetzirah Tov. And what it advocates, if that has appeal, that has seductive appeal. The Yetzirah Tov is telling you, oh, you got to listen to your mom. you got to do what's right. But that does not have the same appeal as what the Yetzirah Hurrah is pitching. The teams are not fairly matched. So here's the question. How can you possibly win in this war? There's a war going on, and the forces advocating for success, for what the soul wants, for what the Torah is telling us to do, is so much weaker, is so much more pathetic, is so much more immature and untrained as the force fighting against us as the Yetzirah. How could he possibly win? How is this fair? There's such a mismatch in ability and power between these two. And of course, we believe in free will. Free will necessitates that the two sides are equal. And the system only works when it's balanced. But here, it seems to be skewed in one direction. The newly arrived Yetzir Tov that comes with the ascent to adulthood with Bar Mitzvah, well, that force is completely outmatched, outclassed by the Yetzirah. Now, the truth is, this question is really alluded to in the Mishnah. In the fourth chapter of Pirkei Avos, Mishnah number two, we're told, Haveratz you should run in pursuit of an easy mitzvah as you would for a more important mitzvah. And you should flee from sin. And the commentaries note that the Mishnah is telling us to run towards a mitzvah and away from a sin. We're running in both instances, but we're running towards a mitzvah and we're fleeing from sin. And this indicates the imbalance, the asymmetry. We're running to chase after a mitzvah. The mitzvah is not stationary. The mitzvah is fleeing from us, and we have to chase them down. We have to run towards a mitzvah. And the sins, they're not stationary either. They're pursuing us. And we have to flee from them. We have to outrun them. The Mishnah is noting that in order for us to succeed, we have to actively pursue the mitzvah because otherwise it's going to evaporate. It's going to disappear. It's running away from us. And we have to run away actively from the sin because otherwise it will overtake us. The Yetzirah outslugs the Yetzir Tov. The teams, the forces are mismatched. How do we resolve this problem? How do we understand the balance that's supposed to be present in order for free will to exist? There's this immutable rule. There has to be balance. There has to be free will. How indeed is there free will when the Yetzirah, the force pushing us 
to sin, the force standing in our way, trying to blockade us, to prevent us from doing mitzvahs. When that force is so much stronger than the Yetzir Tov trying to encourage us to do mitzvahs, it seems like it's not fair. So here's the answer. There's another factor involved. If the appeal for the mitzvah and the sin, if the appeal was equal in either way, either they were both pursuing you, they were both stationary, if you were equally attracted to both the mitzvah and the sin, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be balanced because everyone would favor mitzvahs. And the reason is because the payoff of the mitzvah is much greater. What your soul covets is expressly delineated in the Torah. And what provides you real meaning, those are the mitzvahs. The Yetzirah, in fact, is dominant, but what it is offering you, it's all empty calories. It's all fleeting pleasure. It's all comfort that does not invigorate. What the Yetzir Tov is advocating for, that's something much more real. That's something that resonates within our depths. That's something that gives life ultimate meaning and purpose. It's something much more sublime and deeply, profoundly meaningful. The payoff of the mitzvah is much greater than the payoff of the sin. And therefore, the only way to truly balance things is to make their respective appeals unbalanced in favor of the Yetzirah. So if I can rephrase this with more clarity... There are two imbalances at play. There is an imbalance in the appeal of mitzvos and sins, respectively, of the agenda of the Yetzirah and the Yetzir Tov, respectively. That's imbalance number one. There is a second imbalance, and that is with respect to the payoff of listening to the Yetzir Tov versus the Yetzirah of following the path of mitzvos versus sins. With respect to the appeal, the Yetzirah is dominant. It has your attention. It's the incumbent. It's been there for 13 years before you even showed up. What it is proposing, what it is advocating, is something that we can all instantly appreciate. The sin is chasing you. In this dimension, with respect to the appeal, the Yetzir Tov is much weaker. The mitzvah is fleeing from you. But there's another imbalance. And that is once you make a choice. Once you choose between these two paths, the choices are not equal. The path of the Yetzir Tov is dominant because it bestows real meaning and purpose. It aligns with the very depths of who you are. 
it connects with a person on the most profound of levels. By contrast, when someone heeds the Yetzirah, that's never going to yield that same pleasure. It's going to be empty. It's going to be superficial. It may, in fact, leave a bad aftertaste in its wake. You won't feel enriched. You won't feel emotionally, spiritually uplifted and invigorated from the experience. That's an imbalance in the opposite direction. And thus the balance of free will, that equilibrium, that's the system that the Almighty Institute in the world, it's a balance of two imbalances. The appeal, initially, the desire favors the Yetzahara. The payoff favors the Yetzir Tov, and man, mankind, humanity, is thrust into the middle of this maelstrom, into the middle of this conflict, and we must choose. The Midrash that we've mentioned in the past compares this to two paths. A person's at a fork in the road. You could go right or you could go left. And in one direction, it seems like it's really appealing. It's really pleasant. Roads, the roads are beautiful. Everything's really nicely paved. The scenery is nice. It's all appealing. And you look in the other direction, and it's full of thorns, and it's not a good road, and it seems a little scary and daunting and overwhelming. But then you discover that after you go a little bit, the roads change. The road that was initially so appealing, a little bit further down, past that curve, it's actually really dangerous and really unappealing. Whereas the more difficult path initially, ultimately yields to a beautiful path down the road. Here's the imbalance. When it comes to choosing, when it comes to free will, when it comes to the Yetzirah the Yetzirah, initially, the path that the Yetzirah favors is more appealing. Indeed. He's more talented. He's more gifted at getting your attention. He precedes the Yetzirah Tov by 13 years. He's more experienced. The Yetzirah Tov, what it's offering, what it could pitch to you, what it could show you, doesn't look exciting or titillating in any way. But once you get a little further down the road, one provides a much more rich payoff and one leaves you with nothing. Bar Mitzvah, that is a critical juncture in a child's life. Now they are mature. Now they can begin to appreciate the more sophisticated pleasures in life. Now they're capable of seeing a bigger picture than before. Now they can appreciate a fine steak, not just junk food. 
Now they're players in this great game, this grand conflict of life. Now the Yetzir Tov has a chance. Previously, the Yetzir was unchallenged. The child was incapable of resisting the agenda that the Yetzirah sold. The appreciation for the more subtle and the more meaningful experiences, it just wasn't present previously. Now, the child is transitioning to adulthood. And now is where the real conflict of life begins. Now the question is, which one of these paths are you going to choose? How are you going to navigate the most important dilemmas of your life? And if you think about it, the hardest move, the hardest step is the first one. Initially, the difference, the contrast between these two paths is the greatest. It's really hard to get someone to taste from the path of the Yetzir Tov for the first time because it doesn't have that appeal. In fact, it seems dangerous. That path seems laden with thorns and thistles and all forms of unspeakable dangers. And there's nothing pulling you in. The mitzvahs are fleeing from you. The sins are pursuing you. They're chasing you. The hardest step is the first one. But what happens once someone takes a little stroll down the more difficult path? They begin to sample and taste from what the Yetzir Tov is offering. They're going to start to develop a taste for it, for those finer things in life. And it's going to connect with them. And it's going to resonate within them in a way that's going to outclass what the other side is actually offering. Now, there's a chance. Now, the path to defeat the Yetzirah is open before them. In the words of the Ramchal in Way of the Upright, the agenda of the Yetzirah Tov actually has magnetic appeal. Like two magnets attracted to each other with, with ceaseless attraction. Man could be drawn to Torah mitzvahs to the agenda of the Yetzir Tov, provided that they have experienced it first, provided they've learned to appreciate it, provided that their palate has matured to be able to appreciate those more subtle experiences of life. Way back in the book of Exodus, in the run-up to the Ten Commandments, there is an amazing Rashi. This is chapter 19, verse 4 of the book of Exodus. This is right before the Jewish people have accepted the Torah. And again, the Torah, that's the agenda of the Yetzir Tov. It doesn't have that same appeal as what the Yetzirah is selling. And Rashi explains the verse, verse 4, as saying, if you accept it now, it will be pleasurable for you in the future. For all beginnings are difficult. If you accept the offerings of the Yetzir Tov now, when it's hard, it will be pleasurable henceforth, because all beginnings are hard, 
at the beginning. It's just in the appeal phase. Well, it's hard. Because in that dimension, the advantage favors the Yitzhahara. But once you taste it, it becomes supremely desirable going forward. Because once you've transitioned to the payoff phase, the Yitzhah Tov is offering a lot more substance. All the beginnings are hard. Because in the appeal phase, the imbalance favors the Yitzhara. In the beginning, the mitzvahs are fleeing from you. The sins are chasing you. Winning is hard because you have to really work hard. You have to tenaciously, against those headwinds, pursue the mitzvahs. And you have to flee. You have to hightail away from the sins which are mercilessly hounding you. But once you're past that stage, once you get past that little curve in the road, it will be pleasurable from you then on. The beginning is hard. If it's not hard, if it's not difficult, you're not quite yet at the beginning. The beginning is hard. But once you get a taste for the better things in life, it's pleasurable from there on. Now, this is not to say that the battle's over. The battle's not over once you have a taste in spiritual matters, until you are taken out of this arena, until the Almighty removes you from the playing field, you're still in the battle. But once you've tasted it, you can win. Now it is feasible. And then I wanted to suggest that this really is the story of our Parsha. So, of course, our Parsha has more mitzvot than any other Parsha in the whole Torah, but there are a few interesting patterns in our Parsha. The Parsha begins with a war. When you go out to war, he says, when you go out to war against your enemies. And the Parsha also ends with a war. The war against the Malik. In the first war, we read about a warrior going into battle encountering a beautiful captive and being so taken by this beautiful captive, wanting to marry this captive. That's the war at the beginning of the Parsha. And the Parsha ends with the war against our national nemesis, the nation of Amalek, that launched an unprovoked attack against us after we left Egypt. And our national mission is to completely and totally destroy any remnant of this nation to completely eradicate Amalek from the world. So the Parsha begins with a war, ends with a war. But quite interestingly, the sources tell us that these two descriptions of war are alluding to the spiritual war of our life, the war against the Yetzirah. The Zohar says, When you go out to war against your enemy, which enemy is being hinted to in the beginning of our parsha? The war against the Yetzirah. What about Amalek at the end of the parsha? Again, the Zohar tells us, 
Amalek, Ha Yitzra Bisha, which is Aramaic for this is the Yitzhara. So our parsha is bookended with wars, and not just any wars, wars that are emblematic, or at least are alluding to the war against the Yetzirah. Our parsha is like a war sandwich, starting off with war against the Yetzirah and concluding with that same war. But if you examine these wars closely, you'll see that they're wars with very different results. What happens with the first war against the Yetzirah? It ends in failure. Rashi tells us this is the second verse of our Parsha. The Torah here speaking against the Yetzirah. For if God does not allow you to marry this beautiful captive woman, you will marry her in sin. You will violate the transgression and you will marry her nonetheless. Rashi says something incredible. The idea that when you go to war and you see this foreign woman and you take her as a captive and you are so enamored by her and you're so infatuated with her that in this particular setting, there's no way for you to overcome this temptation. Amid the passions of war and the tenacity of the battle, and you have this beautiful, seductive woman, and she's availing herself to you. Rashi, quoting from our sages, tell us that self-control is impossible. If God forbade this relationship, you'd do it nonetheless. You'd violate that prohibition. And even though ordinarily you would say, well, maybe this is something that ought to be prohibited, under any other circumstances would be prohibited, it's permitted because this battle is unwinnable. So it's interesting, the beginning of our parsha, it's talking about a war, and it's talking about the war against the Sahara, and there's this very dubious loophole where, because there's no way for you to win this battle, there's no way for you to overcome this temptation, the Almighty says, okay, you can't win this war? Give in. The first war against the Yitzhara in our Parsha is unwinnable, and it's very different than what is expected from us at the end of the Parsha. From a war that we cannot win, we go to a war that we must win. Not just win it, we have to win it with total victory, and we have to erase and destroy and eradicate the name and the memory of Amalek. We have to completely annihilate Amalek. So it's a very interesting transition. We start off with a war, a war against the Yitzhara, a war that we cannot win. It's guaranteed to end in defeat. And the Parsha ends with a war, a war against the Yitzhara, that we must win, and we must win with total victory. Well, what changed? How does this war and the prospect of victory, how does it change so drastically? 
And the answer, of course, is what happens in the middle between these two descriptions of war. What happens in the middle of our parsha? What is the bulk of our parsha? Tons and tons of mitzvos. More than any parsha in the whole Torah. That's the secret. You start off at the beginning of the war. And the beginnings are really hard. It's an imbalance. The sides are mismatched. The forces are unequal. The sins are chasing you. The mitzvahs are fleeing from you. At the beginning, prior to the mitzvahs, prior to tasting what the Yitzhar Tov is offering you, it is indeed an unwinnable battle. But what happens after 74 mitzvahs? What happens after someone has a taste for matters of the spiritual, the more subtle pleasures being offered by the Yetzir Tov? After 74 mitzvahs, it can be legitimately asked of a person to completely annihilate a malek, to completely destroy the Yetzirah. Once you have a taste for matters of the spiritual, no one's going to say that defeating the Yetzirah is easy as pie, piece of cake, Bob's your uncle. No one's going to say that. But now, it is a reasonable request. Now it is feasible. Now it is potentially winnable. The tides have turned. At a bar mitzvah, a child ascends to a new level. Now, there's another player in town. There's the Yetzir Tov. And while if we were to measure, to match up the appeal of what the Yetzir Tov is selling versus what the Yetzir is selling, the forces are not quite balanced. But at this juncture, someone is more mature and they can learn to develop a taste for spiritual matters, now they have a chance. Now, they're part of this grand conflict of life. And during the Bar Mitzvah, I said that our son, Yehoshua, he already has a head start. He's always loved to learn Torah, to study Torah, with great zest. And he has a penchant for doing mitzvos. The Yetzir Tov is already operational within him. But we wished him, indeed, that he unlock his potential and he develops into someone who brings honor and pride to his family, to his friends, to the entire Jewish nation, of course, to his creator. But now, oh, friends, oh, listeners, oh, Parsha Pankis family, you get to hear from the man himself. For the exquisite insight, here is the Bar Mitzvah boy himself, Yehoshua Wolby, here with this week's edition of the Exquisite Insight. You ready? Yeah. Go. If you read the Torah's description of tefillin, you'd have no idea how to fulfill this mitzvah. The Talmud says that every aspect of how tefillin are made and worn is a halacha l'moshim or a law from the oral Torah. 
meaning that it's this is a law that Moshe told us orally that he received from God at Sinai, and we trace it back all the way back to the original source via the tradition, but it's not written down. Correct. The fact that the tefillin has to be written on parchment, it's halacha Moshe Misenai. It's written in ink, oral Torah. The identity of the four parchios, it is not divulged in the Torah. Four parchios meaning the four parchments that are in the four compartments on the tefillin on the head, the shalrosh, and the, again, those same four Torah sections are featured also on the tefillin that's on the hand. Is that right? Yeah. But the, the identity is not revealed in the Torah, it's part of the halacha Lamosha Messina, it's a halacha given from Moshe at Sinai. The shape of the tefillin, the titura and the ma'abarta, they're all halacha Moshe Messina. And just, just for clarification, those refer to parts of the tefillin, the structure, the build of the box and the shape of how it's made. Part of it's called the titura, part of it's called the ma'abarta, and all that is not featured in the Torah, the written Torah. It's a halacha from Moshe at Sinai. Yeah. The shins on either side of the shalrosh, and that they must be squared, that the boxes are separated with a sinew of an animal, that the parshios are wrapped with a piece of parchment and tied with a hair, that the straps have to be black, and the dollar of the tefillin and the yud of the tefillin, they're all from oral Torah. This raises an interesting question. Why specifically in this mitzvah, are so much of the basic halacha not written down in the Torah and instead left to oral tradition, parent to child, generation to generation? Why specifically by tefillin does the description of the mitzvah in the Torah leave so much for Torah Shabal Peh? Perhaps we can suggest an answer. The Sefer HaChinuch on the mitzvah of tefillin Shalosh says something very interesting about the parshios found inside the tefillin. Why are these four parshios? Kadesh v'haya kiviacha shma v'haya imshamoa are wrapped on our arms opposite our hearts and on our head. He explains because these parshios. Actually, if I could just clarify, of all the Torah sections of the Torah, these four specifically, two in Exodus, two in Deuteronomy, these four were selected to be in in the tefillin, both the one on the arm and the one on the head. You could have selected a lot of different things. There's a lot of very interesting and moving and powerful and evocative parsha sections in the Torah. Why these four specifically? Is that the question? Yeah. He explains, Because these parshios contain the essentials of our religion, it has accepting the yoke of God. It talks about the oneness of Hashem. It talks about leaving Egypt, which necessitates Imuna. Therefore, we are commanded to take these Torah sections and affix them on ourselves to always remember their messages and strengthen ourselves in them. These tenets are so crucial. We must remember them every day. Perhaps we can suggest that another indispensable essential of our religion is the necessity of relying on tradition. We are wearing this very elaborate device every day, and the way it's made and designed and worn is completely a result of tradition. One of the most important ideas that we cannot forget is the transmission of Torah from parent to child, from generation to generation. Part of what we are supposed to remember every day when we wear a tefillin is that our glorious life that we have today did not spontaneously emerge overnight. What we have today is the result of painstaking and dedicated commitment of our illustrious predecessors. 
generation to generation, parent to child. I think this is a fitting idea to think about as I come to age, as I become obligated mitzvahs, as I start wearing tefillin for real. We have to remember that the wonderful Torah and mitzvahs and way of life that we are fortunate to partake in wasn't hatched overnight. It is based upon a long and glorious tradition, going all the way back to Moshe at Sinai. I am here before you today, but I am standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm here thanks to my parents and grandparents. I'm here because of the sacrifices and immuna of my great-grandparents, all eight of them were Holocaust survivors, who tenaciously clung to the Torah, notwithstanding the horrors that they underwent. This past summer, I had the great fortune of visiting Eretz Yisrael. One of the highlights of the trip was visiting the farm of seven of my great-grandparents during the trip. All of them, Tzadikim, Kedoshim, people of unflinching faith, people who exemplified superlative amuna. It is in their merit that I am here before you today. They are my link to Sinai all the way back to Moses, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Bill wanted to curse the Jews, he saw their roots. When he saw the fathers and the mothers, he saw that they were so firmly entrenched in the ground, they were immovable and unconquerable. It didn't stop there. It continues and continues until today. I hope that I, too, will build my link on this noble and glorious chain. May the merit of these giants be a merit to me as I enter the world of mitzvahs, and may you all be blessed with all the blessings in the world. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Yoshua Wolby, for that stirring lesson about tefillin and what it teaches us about the importance of tradition and us never forgetting where we came from. Before we sign off from this podcast, I have a, a few questions that I need to ask you. Uh, Rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Who was a greater president, Lincoln or Washington? Uh, Washington. Washington. Okay. Who was a greater political theorist, Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton? Hamilton. Hamilton. I like this. Two for two. Uh, the listeners may not know, but Yeshua's expertise outside of Torah are American history and football. So we'll ask some football questions. Super Bowl predictions. This is the first week. Who do you predict is going to represent the AFC and the NFC in the Super Bowl in 2023? I think the Bills are going to be in the Super Bowl for AFC, but for NFC, possibly the Rams, possibly the Buccaneers. And who's your pick for MVP this year? Josh Allen. Josh Allen. Oh, there you go. You have it over here. We have it now timestamped before the season even starts. Yoshua will be predicting that the Bills are going to make it all the way to the Super Bowl behind MVP quarterback Josh Allen. Thank you, Yoshua, for coming and joining us on the Parsha Podcast and celebrating your bar mitzvah with all of the listeners. I hope you all enjoyed. Send me an email, rabbiwoman.com. Have an incredible day, a splendid rest of your week, and a fantastic and wonderful, uplifting, inspiring Shabbos of coming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week.